0: Do you have a Bible today? Open it to Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8. I'll give you a few moments to find the book of Genesis. And as soon as you get it, stand to your feet with me as we read God's Word, please. Genesis chapter number 8. And we begin here today one verse in verse 21, and then we'll go over to chapter 9. Genesis chapter 8 and verse number 21. 21. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor coming from the altar of Noah. And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Note that phrase. This is God's assessment of human nature. The imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. And neither will I again smite any, any more every living thing as I have done. And while the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. Chapter 9, please, verse 8. And God spake unto Noah and to his son, saying, I will, I, And I, behold, I establish my covenant with you. And with your seed after you, and with every living creature that, that is with you, of the fowl, of the cattle, and of every beast of the earth with you, from all that go out of the ark to every beast of the earth. I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of the flood, neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the, the earth. And God said, this is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. Notice that. It will not end. The covenant will not end. I do set my bow in the cloud. It shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth This is the token of the covenant which I've established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. Thank you and you may be seated. And so here we have the first mention of a rainbow. I believe it was the first rainbow because this rainbow, I I believe it was the first rainbow because there could not have been a rainbow before the flood. Because the Bible says that before the flood, there was no rain. And so, of course, rain is required for a rainbow. We see here that God repeats a number of times that this rainbow is a sign of his perpetual covenant. And not just with Noah and his family. But he says for perpetual generations. And then he says it's with every living creature. So that doesn't leave out anyone. In Genesis chapter 8 and verse 21 that we first read, and you may want to mark that in your Bible, God's promise is, never again will I destroy all life from the earth, as happened in the the flood, except, of course, for the family of Noah himself. Never again, the rainbow means, will I destroy all life on earth. And so I don't fear climate change because God says the earth is not going to pass away. It's going to be here for perpetual generations until I choose otherwise. I don't worry. I worry about nuclear war, but I don't think it's going to destroy the whole planet as many people fear. I always think that if they start a nuclear war, I hope I'm under the direct hit and don't have to go through the rest of it. But I I don't fear that. I don't lie awake at night thinking about that. I don't fear that a pandemic is going to come and kill all life upon the earth because we have God's promise. And every time I look up and see a rainbow, as I did yesterday afternoon, by the way, when I see a rainbow, I know that God has promised perpetual life upon the earth until he comes and he chooses otherwise a rainbow is found four times in the bible only four mentions that i can find and it's interesting because the context always is the key to interpretation isn't it and the context each time a rainbow is mentioned in scripture the context involves god showing mercy God showing grace, but also it's connected to a time of judgment. So mercy and grace in a time of God's judgment. And so we have it here, Genesis 9 and 16. The context is right after the great flood, and God shows mercy and grace to Noah and his family. He has saved them. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, the old song says. And then in Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 28, the context is Ezekiel has a prophetic glimpse into heaven, and the Babylonian captivity is about to come. God is about to judge his people for their idolatry. They're leaving him and worshiping other idols. The nation is going to be carried away. The nation is going to fall. Judah and Israel will no longer exist for 70 years. And so at that time, God hangs a rainbow up there, and he says, but there's going to be an end to this. There's going to be mercy. There's going to be grace. We find a rainbow in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 3, where the context is just before the tribulation period. The tribulation period opens in Revelation 6 and 1, and all the great judgments of God befall the earth, and God is seen on his throne with a rainbow about him. Mercy and grace in a context of judgment. Revelation chapter 10 and verse 1 is the final rainbow in the Bible. The context is it's the end of the tribulation period now. And uh, John looks into heaven in his prophetic vision and he sees a rainbow again at the throne of God. This is just before the return of Christ At the end of the tribulation period, the tribulation judgments are over, and now we are ready for uh, the millennial kingdom to begin. And so God hangs a rainbow there, a symbol of his mercy and grace. However, you and I live at a time when the rainbow has been hijacked and has become the symbol instead of God's mercy and grace It's diabolical, really. Instead of God's mercy and grace, it's now the symbol of practices that the Lord Jesus Christ, in His Word, said, these are not to be. It has become the symbol of gross practices of immorality. From God's mercy and grace to immorality. And this is, we're just about at the end of Pride Month and I don't want to wish away my life, but I'm ready for Pride Month to end. Um, The rainbows that I see everywhere are not God's rainbow. They don't represent mercy and grace. And I really didn't want to preach on this, but the New Testament teaches that the church, don't miss this, The church is to be the moral conscience of society. The church is the moral conscience of the community. If the church doesn't speak about moral matters, who will? This is our domain. If the hospital won't practice medicine, if the manufacturing plant won't make anything, they're out of business. If the church won't speak to the issues of the day, and this is the dominant issue of our time, if the church won't speak to that, basically we're still out of business too, aren't we? We're the moral conscience of the nation, of the community. And I believe this issue is so serious. With all my heart, I believe this is going to be the defining issue Of this period of American history, that the nation's very existence depends on which road America takes in the very near future. We are charged, preachers above all, are charged to speak truth, to speak the truth with love, to speak the truth kindly, but nonetheless to speak the truth. And so today, I want you to think with me, about a Christian response to Pride Month. The Christian's response to Pride Month, the issue that's just everywhere in every area of our culture today. I have three points. One, America has become modern-day Sodom and Gomorrah. Number two, America has embraced openly the sins of Sodom. And number three, How do we as Christians respond to the decadency of American life today? Number one, America has become modern-day Sodom and Gomorrah. Listen to me now. In 1991, Dr. James Hunter, a sociologist at the University of Virginia, wrote a book. It's a very important book. It's called Culture Wars. He's the first person to ever use that term, culture wars, the struggle to define America. And in the book, Dr. Hunter describes the conflict between secularism and the Judeo-Christian values that this country was established upon. And he calls it the cultural war, the struggle to define America today. Nowhere in the culture wars and all the issues of our day Nowhere do I believe that it's more clearly seen uh, the divide between secularism and Christian values. Nowhere is it more clearly seen in the issue of sex and morality in that whole area there, our view of it. The progressive phrase today that you hear over and over, many of you work in companies where they push this constantly, or you tell me that's true. You hear this phrase over and over, diversity and inclusion, diversity and inclusion. Have you ever really stopped to think through what that phrase really means? Well, it can mean many different things depending on its context. But it has come to mean that Christians must accept deviant practices that are repugnant to our faith and our belief systems. Practices so deviant that only the mind of sinful people could conceive of them. And we're to accept that or to be marginalized, very frankly. A little bit of history on the whole issue. In 1999, President Bill Clinton first declared June, and at that time he simply declared it to be Gay Pride Month. I remember that, many of you do. Then under that phrase, diversity and inclusion, Gay Pride Month was expanded by President Obama to include LGBT Month, and it ended there. L, lesbian, G, gay, B, bisexual, T, trans. If that wasn't enough, under President Biden, he has now expanded it to LGBTQIA+, the plus representing about twenty, some more designations of sexual desire and and sexual practice. Now think about that acrostic that we see all the time: LGBTQIA IA plus And and you know there now, if you look on the uh, internet, just Google how many gender genders are recognized in America. It's over fifty now. So this. LGBTQIA plus can go on and on for 50 more categories. Now, every one of those letters, every letter in that LGBTQIA plus formula represents a form of slavery to sin. Basically, that's what that represents. I define myself by my sexual practices. And it's a substantial problem. We believe there are three to five percent of the population in the country, depending on the poll. Three to five percent of the population of the country that would put themselves in one of those LGBTQIA plus categories. Three to five percent of three hundred million people, though, is somewhere between nine and fifteen million people. That's a lot more people than live in South Carolina, for example. So we're talking about. A huge number of people, though it's a small percentage of the the population. And in each case, under each of those 50 letters, these are people who define themselves by their sexual desires. Now, just stop and think that through. I don't define myself as straight. It never entered my mind until just a few years ago when it was forced upon me by all this stuff. How do I define myself I'm a male, I am a husband, I'm a father, I'm a grandfather, I'm a preacher, I'm a pastor, I'm an American citizen. Man, I define myself in a lot of ways. I'm not going to reduce myself to one thing, and that's the sexual desires and practices of my life. Just think about a person that only defines themselves in that one way and that'll help you understand the enormity of the problem here so the pride month was started the proponents believe that if we celebrate these practices rather than reject them that they will live a shame free i'm using their terminology we want a shame free life because we have a lot of people in our movement who are depressed, severely depressed, and considering self-harm, and a lot of people are taking their own lives. And so, the argument is, if we celebrate this, our, our identity, rather than reject, have it rejected, then we will live shame-free, and we won't be depressed, and we'll reduce the number of suicides. And with that in mind, every year for an entire month, the rest of us are subjected to a tsunami of propaganda. It comes in waves over everyone living in the country. And it seeks to convince you. Listen, here's the issue, because sometimes when I preach on this, I, I wonder, do people really grab the enormity of what it, the, the ultimate consequences of where this road is leading And so they're seeking to convince you and me that our Bible is wrong, that our Judeo Christian beliefs are in error. They're seeking to convince us that Jesus Christ really was a liar because he spoke to this and he said that every word of the Old Testament was true. And so the implications of it are just absolutely profound. The government pushes it. The military pushes it. Now we have a drag queen on one of the Navy's recruiting <laughs> videos. I know a lot of people are going to join the Navy because of that. Public education is sure signed on. In many cases, it's basically indoctrination in this. Entertainment has normalized and glamorized these lifestyles. Social media, what concerns me is our young people on social media and this has become cool. Homosexuality and all the LGBTQ rainbow of things is now kind of cool in the minds of our kids and it leads them to experimentation and down a path they're not aware of where it's going to go. Pro sports is in on the game now. You heard the deal about the Dodgers, of course, and thankfully some of them are beginning to back up. The medical community is bought in. We have gender affirmative care now, where if a child mentions one time to the right people that he feels he or she feel like they're uh, in the, uh, the opposite sex, then they can be taken to a physician and and in some of our states, the laws now support this. It's it's turned into a really a, a, a medical nightmare. Corporate America's in on it. You know, Target, North Face, Vanguard, Cracker Barrel. Who ever thought we'd sit on the porch at Cracker Barrel in a rocking chair after eating chicken and dumplings and talk about this? Just doesn't fit, does it? Huh? Doesn't make sense. And now some churches are in on it, and they affirm this lifestyle. How do I put a Bible in this hand and affirm affirm this lifestyle? And you know, with all of the publicity and all of the positive affirmation, the rates of depression and suicide in that community continue to climb. We haven't done a thing. We haven't removed the shame because the shame doesn't come ultimately from the culture. The shame comes from the conscience, and God put that within each of us, and we just know in our knower what is right and what is wrong. How could this happen in America? How could this happen in my lifetime? And sometimes I stay awake, as I did this morning, With it on my mind, I think, how could this happen to my country? At one time, the godliest nation on the earth. Number two, America's embraced the sins of Sodom. Let me explain that to you. Will you open your Bible with me? And it's very, very clear here, Ezekiel chapter 16. What are the sins of Sodom? You think you know? Well, you may know one of them. I don't imagine you know all of them. The sins of Sodom. There's six of them enumerated here in the Scripture. And America has embraced every one of them, as you will see. In Ezekiel chapter 16 and verse number 49, Behold, this was the iniquity or the sin of thy sister Sodom, the prophet said to Israel. What are the sins of Sodom? Number one, pride. Pride. Pride says, God, we reject your standards. We know better than you what is good for mankind. We know better than you who should participate in marriage. God, we know better than you what a family is supposed to be. Pride, arrogance says, God, you say certain sexual practices are sinful Well, who are you to judge us? You don't know how we feel. And so, pride was the sin of Sodom. Pride, according to Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, was behind the downfall of Lucifer. Lucifer became Satan, the devil, because of his pride. It's the mother of all sins. In Proverbs 6 and 16, there's a listing of sins. These six sins doeth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination. So, seven sins. Number one on the list, the sins that God hates. The first one listed is pride, and then it says, it is an abomination. Now, you know the Bible says that certain sexual sins are an abomination, but do you know that God puts pride right in the same category with that? Pride, Proverbs 6 and 16, I think it is, says, look, Pride is an abomination as well as some of the other things that we've determined are are an abomination. And so this is the first sin named of the sin that God hates. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2, it's the sin most associated with Satan himself. We tend to think that Satan would be involved in some sort of gross immorality or, or murder or violence or terrible things like that, things that would send you to prison for a long period of time? Uh -uh. Do you know the sin most associated with the devil himself is the sin of pride? Now stop and think about that. And when you feel a sense of pride rise up within you, you, you put it down. You deal with it because it's the sin that God hates, Proverbs 6 and 16. Continue with me, though, in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49. This was the sin of thy sister Sodom, pride. Secondly, fullness of bread. Fullness of bread. You could call that affluency, couldn't you? We have everything that we need, everything that we want. Sodom was a very, very prosperous city, Sodom and Gomorrah. That's why, if you remember, Lot wanted to move there. The whole reason for going there, it would be uh, an advantage uh, business-wise. And so fullness of bread, affluency. Now listen, most of us in here by most standards are affluent people. And we don't have a whole lot of really poor people here. I wish we had more, in fact. And, And I am affluent. The church has blessed me so much throughout my ministry that I would qualify as being an affluent person. And here's what I know from my own heart, and I don't think I'm an exception. Affluence has the potential to cause us to move away from God, to forget God. The more we have, that's why there's warnings in the Scripture to people who have a lot of uh, wealth and riches, because the more I have the more I become independent in my own thinking. And rather than depending upon the Lord, I depend upon my substance. I become independent of him. I don't have to pray, give me this day my daily bread. I got a pantry full. And so affluence works against spirituality. It's not a sin to be well off, but just watch what it does to you. Don't let it move your heart away from God. Some of the coldest, hardest people I know are saved people, but God has blessed them so much they've forgotten where it comes from. Don't ever forget, the Bible says that every good gift that we have comes down from the Father above. Every gift. If it's a blessing, it came from the Lord. And so affluency was the sin of Sodom. And here we live in the most affluent country and in the history of mankind in America. Be careful, I caution you. Verse 49, he continues, and an abundance of idleness. They lost their work ethic. Oh, my soul, does that sound like anything happening today? When everywhere I go, the man that owns the business says I can't find anybody to work. I have to wait for an hour and a half in the restaurant to get my food because he's operating with a skeleton staff. Think about the relevancy of the passage here. I tell you, God's word is always relevant. They lost their work ethic. Their goal became a life of leisure rather than a life of productivity. And today, we're finding that to be true in America. We've embraced the abundance of idleness philosophy. You know, there's an interesting verse in the book of Lamentations. I didn't write it down, so I don't know the specific reference, but you can look it up. Here's what the prophet said. It's good for a man to bear the yoke when he is young. It is good for a man to bear the yoke, meaning to carry responsibility when he's young. One of the I think one of the best things in the world you can do for your children is to teach them to work. Teach them a strong work ethic. I know the whole neighborhood's playing. I know the other kids are off having a good, I, I know all. I know what you're dealing with. But you do your children a favor, my friend, when your children learn just simply how to work, how to go and put themselves into a project. I, I look at, boy I don't want to sound I don't want to sound like my age so how do I get around that I don't know how you do that but I watch kids go to college and I watch them come back and they're in their fifth or sixth or seventh year of college now and College in many places has turned into a, a rite of passage, not to go there and labor and work to, to educate yourself to be really a productive person. It's a party fueled by alcohol and sex, and it goes on forever. Teach your, teach your children to work. It's the best therapy in the world for them. Another sin of Sodom, verse 49, they neglected the poor and the needy. I think the welfare system in our countries desensitized us to the needs of the poor. It's almost like, well, the government's taking care of that. They're getting all this money on the various government programs, and so we don't need to worry about them. We pay taxes, it takes care of it. And in doing that, we, we lose the heart for the people. My heart's for poor people. And I, I I know all the arguments that people, well, did they bring it on themselves or they won't do this, they won't do that. But boy, my heart goes out to that little child being raised in poverty. My heart goes out to that single mom who's trying to make it and it's not her fault her husband abandoned her and Now she's trying to work a job or two jobs and take care of kids. I want to have a heart for the poor, and I want to help the poor. And just because they take a lot of my taxes and waste them, I don't want to stop my ears to the poor people. They're hurting. And in Sodom, nobody cared about the poor people. Nobody cared about the poor people. And then go on to verse 50. And they were haughty. Oh, we're back to the pride thing again, huh? I've already preached on that, but they were haughty. They were arrogant. They were proud. We know better than God. And then in verse 50 again, and they committed abomination. You know all about that. You know that when God went down to Sodom he was ready to judge it. He said, if I can find 10 righteous people in that large city, if I can find just 10 righteous people, I will spare it. And he couldn't find 10. He had counted down from 50 to 40 to 30 to 20 to 10, and he couldn't find 10. Do you know how many righteous people there were in Sodom when God sent the judgment? One. His name was Lot. One And the whole culture had gone so far into depravity that when Lot had guessed, they tried to take him and have relations with them. You see, when a culture hear me, when a culture rejects God's moral standards, where do you go to find morality? When you throw out the Bible and you throw out the Ten Commandments, where are you going to get your morality? What will be the standard when you reject God's standard? Okay, God says, don't steal, don't lie, don't commit adultery, don't whatever. Okay, we don't believe that anymore, God. We're, we're, we're proud, but we're, we're more sophisticated. It's a different day, different age, new morality. Okay, well, where do we go to find it? Now, we, now we've rejected God's standard. Who's got a better one, Huh? And so they committed these abominations because when a culture rejects God's moral standards, then anything goes. And are we not seeing a lot of that in America today? And when that happens, the nation is ripe for judgment, as was Sodom. There's no longer a basis for right and wrong when we no longer have God's authoritative word law. So point three, and lastly. How do we as Christians then respond to to the decadency of our culture today that's represented in Pride Month? Turn in your Bible way over to the end of the New Testament, 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. And there's a passage here that, that I think addresses this. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 6. Let's start in verse 5. And God spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, he condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that should live ungodly. But he delivered just Lot. Notice it, it calls him just. Just in the New Testament refers to being saved, basically. So he delivered one man who was saved, Lot, who was vexed. He was upset with the filthy conversation or lifestyle of the wicked people for that righteous man dwelling among them. Seeing and hearing what was going on, it vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful or ungodly deeds. Lot lived right in the middle of Sodom and Gomorrah when the storm clouds of God's judgment were hanging heavy over the whole city, and yet he never became desensitized. And my concern is that Christians in America living in what we're living in right now, we become desensitized to it. After a while, well, it's just the way things are. I can't do anything about it. It's just normal. I mean, there's going to be, this is another opinion. This is a preference. No, 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 my friend. I want to train you as my flock I want to teach you, you must stand on God's Word, period. You must stand on God's Word. God's Word is truth. This other movement is not truth. It's a lie. It's a satanic lie. I think that's why it's caught on so much in the culture today. I think Satan have blinded the minds of them that believe not. And the Bible cannot be clearer. Same-sex behavior is sinful. It's a part of human depravity, the iniquity that's found in our heart that we originally read about there in Genesis. Leviticus 18 and 22, thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. It's an abomination. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, you have terms there one is effeminate. The other is abusers of themselves with mankind. Both of those, when you study them in the original, refer to homosexual practices that are well-known among people in that movement. Romans 1, 24 through 26, twice it says God gave them up. Once it says God gave them over. Both of them meaning that when a culture, when that becomes the majority thinking of the culture, then God gives them up. He crosses, they cross the line of their ability to even repent. It's very popular today. I I hear it. I read it. I hear it from people, words something like this. Well, Jesus didn't mention anything about homosexuality. He never addressed it. You need to read your Bible again. He did. And here's where he did, and you may want to mark this in your Bible, Matthew 19 and verse 9. And Jesus is speaking about marriage, and he's speaking about one of the partners being unfaithful and committing fornication. And the word fornication there comes from a Greek word pornea. Ah, sound like anything you've heard? Pornography? Pornea is the root word here. But listen, here's what pornea means. It means any sexual practice, any sexual practice, LGBTQIA+, and more and more and more and more any sexual practice outside the bonds of male-female marriage. Any sexual practice outside the bonds of male-female marriage. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that's what the Bible says. You have to, as my mama used to say, Billy, put that in your pipe and smoke it. And I didn't, I didn't even smoke a pipe. But at any rate, in other words, it's up to you now. It's up to you. As Christians, though, let's be careful here. We're to be marked in everything we do by love and compassion for all people, gay, straight. Jesus said, love your neighbors. He didn't say what? What if, what if it's two gay men who live next door? He said, love your neighbor. Here's one that, boy, it's hard for me. Love your enemies. <laughs> that one gets kind of close to home, doesn't it? Love, your na- love God. Love your neighbor. Love your enemy. He didn't make any, any exclusions here, whatever. We are to be characterized as God's people by love for all people. John chapter 13, Jesus said, this is the mark of the Christian. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if you love one another. The mark of the Christian is not carrying a big Bible. The mark of the Christian is not a fish on the back of your car. The mark of the Christian is not wearing a cross on your lapel. The mark of the Christian is I love God and I love people and people see it in me. They know that I care about people regardless of sexual preference, racial makeup, social standing, economic standing, every human made in the image of God I am to love that person. And love is a agape love. It's not a feeling. It's treating them the way that the Lord wants me to treat them. That's a tall order, Christians. And the gay community says, if Christians don't care anything about us, they hate us. Oh, God forbid that that would ever be said again. God forbid that it would ever be said about this church. You know what? I would love to have 50 people come to this church every Sunday morning that we're dealing with these issues right here. Now, I'm going to preach, and I'm going to tell them the truth, but you know what the rest of the truth is? The rest of the truth is that the world offers them no hope. The world offers them no way out, no way of escape. It says you define yourself by your sexuality. The gospel, ladies and gentlemen, offers hope. Homosexual practice, like Any other sinful behavior is reversible behavior. We're born into sin, every one of us. My problem is not homosexuality, but it's other things, other sins that I have a propensity and a tendency toward in my life, and we all have them. And we're born into sin, but the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ is greater than the power of sin. And in John 8 and 32, Jesus said, if you will accept this as the truth, then the truth will set you free. You don't have to be defined by your sexual preference. You can be defined as the son or daughter of Almighty God and Jesus as your Savior. Remember the rainbow. It's not a sign of a lifestyle. It's the sign of of God's mercy and God's grace and His love, even in the midst of judgment, that God loves you, has a plan for you, and if you will receive Him, repent of your sins and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, He can set you free, whoever you are today. Amen? Stand to your feet with me if you will, please.